pleasure to have uh, Professor Ernie Sternberg. Professor Sternberg, who is from the University of Buffalo SUNY, will be speaking on purifying the world, what the radical anti-empire ideology stands for. I think it's a very important issue. And as a footnote, Ernie is one of the, uh, on the board of the SPME. SPME is Scholars for Peace in the Middle East. It's a very important um, academic organization that's dealing with issues of uh, anti-Semitism and the delegitimization of Israel, the new forms of anti-Semitism. Um, and I met him originally at a conference um, that the SPME was involved in in Toronto, and we were just at a conference in Cleveland dealing with uh, issues of Iran. So Ernie's work is important, and I think uh, today's lecture is actually a very important issue. Um, uh, Ernie is a professor of urban and regional planning at the University of Buffalo. Um, he is also the, the, the school of planning, is it, sorry, the Department of Urban and Regional Planning is at the School of Architecture and Planning at the University of Buffalo. Uh, he's the president and member of the board uh, to protect New York, the academic society devoted to research to safeguard New York from issues of terrorism and disaster. Uh, Ernie has his PhD uh, in administration and government from Cornell University, and he did his, his undergraduate studies at Cornell State University. Uh, he was the chair of urban and regional planning in, in Buffalo. Um, and he has uh, a long uh, administrative experience at the university. He was at the Peace Corps in Malaysia. He has two books, one on the economy of icons, how business manufacturers have meaning, and um, also on issues of techno uh, technology, industrial policy, US responses to technological change, and many other uh, important articles on related matters. So it's really an honor and a privilege to have you here. Thanks. So welcome. Thank you. Um, I've been told to speak for no more than half an hour. <laughs> this is uh, really a tough uh, challenge for me because the paper I, on which I'm speaking took uh, six months to write. So I'm going to squeeze all that into half an hour. So I'm going to skip quite a few parts of the paper. Things don't quite add up. You're certainly welcome to look at the paper, which is posted, I believe, on the ESA uh, webpage. Um, I'll be speaking about, the paper isn't in, entirely about the causes of anti-Zionism. Rather, the paper is about a new kind of radicalism that has been swamping the campuses. And is extremely uh, important, a form of left-wing radicalism that's extremely important uh, throughout the world has arisen since the fall of communism in the, uh, in the last 20 years. And there's a strong connection between the rise of this new radicalism and the vehemence that anti-Zionism has taken in Europe uh, and on campuses in the United States. Um, I, don't, I am not by any means saying that this is the only cause of the extreme anti-Zionism that we're seeing. In fact, there are several causes, as we know. There's simply this issue of war and the Palestinians' need to use accusations of various kinds as part of the warfare itself. You know, propaganda and disinformation is part of war. Um, it's also uh, the rise of Islamism and various kinds, the Iranian version and the uh, other kinds of versions, as well as movements in Europe and uh, almost an emotional need within parts of Europe to find Jews responsible for crimes. Therefore, there's a ready audience for these and other reasons for anti-Zionist accusations. But in addition to these, 
uh, the rise of this new movement, which I am calling, for want of a better word, purificationism, is a very, is a, as far as the campuses go, probably the single most important cause. I'll give you why, since I do teach urban planning, I'll explain why I happen to come up on this subject and what has taken such a, become such an important part of my life in the past um, five years or so. It had to do, it started with a particular lecture that I saw on campus. The lecture was by uh, someone named Norman Finkelstein. And Norman Finkelstein uh, was brought together by people I thought were distinguished members of the campus community at the University of Buffalo. And you know, three things he said that have stuck to my mind ever since and disturbed me a great deal on that day. He said, for one thing, that, um, let me just recall now, that the uh, reason for the outpouring of books after 1967 about the Holocaust, and he estimated about 2,000 books, which may be more or less on track, was that Jewish leadership wanted Jews uh, to write such books so as to excuse the um, oppression of Palestinians. So there was some kind of a deceitful and secret movement that is possible, and Jews are capable of listening to this kind of instruction to get them collectively to write 2,000 books about this very difficult, disturbing subject. He also said that uh, Elie Wiesel and the um, Wiesenthal's were uh, running all the stuff about the Holocaust to make money. And uh, he also found their activities very amusing in general, made various kinds of very poor jokes. Um, I'd done just a bit of research on him before he talked, and I found the particular statement he had made that Israel had invited blonde, blue-eyed Russians to Israel, or had allowed them in, so that Israelis could turn themselves into an Aryan race. And uh, I asked him afterwards, what is your evidence that Israelis want to turn themselves into an Aryan race? He said, he was kind of caught by that question. And he said, well, have I read Leon Uris's Exodus? Actually, I haven't read him. But the main character's name is Ari. And he said, a much bigger audience than this one, about 200 people. He said, well, you know, Ari is short for Aryan. Okay. Now, what this disturbed me is, is this guy just a crackpot? But if he's just a crackpot, why is he invited by that time to several dozen campuses, some of the most distinguished campuses around the country? Why is he being invited? And why do the people who invite them not dissociate themselves from him? And that's true, as an English professor introduced him, English professor later wrote him, which appeared on his webpage, on Finkelstein's webpage, a letter of congratulations and thank you. Another inviter was a distinguished professor of English. And actually another distinguished professor of English. Well, one of the distinguished professors of English, SUNY gives uh, funds for distinguished professorships, and he's distinguished professor funds. Other inviters were Muslim students, and the, the local peace and justice group in Buffalo called the Western Europe Peace Center, as well as a church, one of the local churches. Now, it occurred to me that peace center is most well known for environmentalist green type positions. Why would this particular combination of people bring in a Finkelstein? What is it for them? What's the mentality that they would be attracted to this sort of thing and then not divorce themselves from it later? This is the question I ask myself. And divorce, you know, concerned me ever since. It actually led me to join Scholars for Peace in the Middle East and to establish the Buffalo uh, chapter. I started looking, was well, this a one-off affair or is there more going on? 
I look at some of the activities of these professors, what they've been writing, it's very easy nowadays, you stick, stick in their name and I'll put in Zionism or Israel and see what they're up to. Well, it turns out all three of them publish in this, I don't know it's a magazine or a, you know, one of these web things called Counterpunch. How many of you have run into Counterpunch? Uh, three of you have run into Counterpunch. Among the accusations made in Counterpunch, a lot of professors write for Counterpunch. Counterpunch has, is sort of connected to or offshoot of the work of Noam Chomsky and believe this hard global distinction between an evil colonial empire that controls the world and true genuine human movements that are oppressed by it. The discussion of Israel is probably the most common subject of discussion within that webpage. Among the subjects that have been discussed, uh, uh, several articles suggested or uh, accused Israel or the Mossad of having been behind the destruction of the World Trade Center. And most recently, this is actually hit the Bene Grid actually took notice of this one, uh, an article by Alison Weir. Alison Weir, by the way, had also been invited to Buffalo, also by the same grouping, to, to, to Buffalo State College, to this college, uh, accusing Jews, uh, Israelis, of systematically harvesting Palestinian body parts for sale. Okay. That's the same crowd. <coughs> okay. So where is this coming from? And I am in, partly, in, in part an answer to that question that I've been doing my, uh, my research. It has turned out that I am not the only one who has been disturbed by the larger phenomenon that is causing us. A lot of us, a lot of people are concerned about this as a new kind of anti-Semitism and are aware that a lot of it is coming on the extreme left. But what is the nature of this extreme left? That's what we've got to figure out. I'm not the first one to ask this question. Uh, other people, interesting books have been written that I have been influenced by. One is by the French thinker and popular thinker, media personality called Bernard Henri Lévy. His recent book on this, uh, on this new kind of left is called Left in the Dark, or maybe Left in Dark Times, it's quite interesting. Another one by someone in England named Nick Cohen means What's Left is the name of his book. And both are looking at extremely disturbing trends within the new left that has arisen since the 1990s. As a matter of fact, uh, Bernard Henri Levy has several names for it. He finds it a very disturbing phenomenon. He's not primarily writing about anti-Semitism, though it comes in there. He calls it, his most kind word for it is neo-progressivism. Other words are the zombie left, red fascists, new barbarians, cadaverous left, oxymoronic left. Uh, these groups don't themselves call themselves that. The terms they have for themselves are anti-globalization, global intifada, eco-socialism, green socialism, counter-globalization, and so forth alter globalization and these kinds of other mixed kinds of words. Um, <clears throat> Peace and justice movement is a very typical one. Um, both Bernard Henri Levy and Cohn have seen in this some kind of dark, disturbing degradation of the left. They also imply, both imply, and I have also found in my studies, that is that this world that comes from many different sources, this world, this new kind of radicalism, many kinds of, many streams of thought converge, many motives, many issues. Yet there seems to be some central characteristic to it, logical characteristic, that makes it seem, or makes it resemble very much like an ideology. One of the powerful kinds of ideologies that had such a powerful effect, a horrendous effect throughout the 20th century. 
essential feature is a division between the very sinister forces that keep the world repressive as it is, and these consist, consist of global capitalism, very often referred to as empire with a big E, exerting economic forces through multinational corporations that suppress uh, people around the world, suppress communities, and impose on them a homogenous westernized corporate, westernized corporate culture, and use militarism and various kinds of technologies to export this, uh, uh, a kind of systematic oppression of the communities around the world and communities within the United States. So that's on the sinister side. That's the bad side. It's kind of a toxic world in which we live. It's this toxic world which is also destroying the environment. It is changing, uh, it, 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 it is ruining the seasons. It is destroying the oceans. It is polluting our lives. It is changing our biological, our, our biological systems themselves through all kinds of contaminants that have been imposed by capitalism which does not care about, it's by global capitalism, which does not care about its consequences for humanity. It's out there to be greedy and ruthless and to suppress and oppress for the sake of those racist uh, manipulators who control it. As against this stands a new possible future world. This new possible future world is peaceful. It has no war. It is just. It, it does not believe in nation states, rather transnational non-governmental organizations impose or control justice and impose a higher form of justice on the world. Communities of all types get along. There's no white, cultural, imperialist, Western domination any longer. Rather, cultures celebrate each other. Communities celebrate each other and live in peace and mutual understanding, celebrate each, each other's existence. This new world has a sustainable economy in which the world operates with an alternative energy. It's non-polluting. Uh, species are protected. Human beings themselves find a, re <coughs> a way of reintegrating themselves with the world's natural ecosystems. The world is saved from destruction <coughs> by militarism, by weapons, and by capitalist pollution. So we have We've had a new bliss, a pure new world. And those of us, let's say I put myself in the position of those who believe this, those of us, let's say I'm one of them, who believe this, we have the highest motives. Our motives are pure. We want purity. We want goodness. We want cleanliness. We want everyone to get along. We are against the systematic global power to which we can attribute all the miseries in the world. So this is the fundamental kind of idea. Now, you say you want to check me out. There must be an equivalent to the Western Europe Peace Center in New Haven. There probably are several peace and justice groups in New Haven. I suggest if you don't believe that this is the mode of thought, go over and have a conversation. Okay. You'll find people who very much believe in uh, natural food, avoidance of contaminants, purity of life, anti-militarism of all kinds, being pacifist. 
wanting everyone to get along, all minorities, everyone. To <coughs> extremely fearful of environmental change and extremely distrustful of the powers that be in corporate governments. And you'll find endless web pages reflecting this mode of thought. Just endless. Now, it'd be more appropriate, and in my paper, I also go into the theoretical origins or sources <coughs> of this mode of thought. Uh, in the case of 20th century forms of left-wing radicalism, the major source was, of course, the work of Karl Marx and all the people that came after him. This is no longer, the Marxists, and old Mar especially old Marxists are still involved, this is no longer primarily a Marxist movement. There's many distinctions and differences between uh, uh, Marxism and the kind of new radicalism that has arisen. In fact, one of the reasons that it's so hard to identify or put one's finger on it is that it has so many different sources. Um, uh, for example, some that come from the work of Noam Chomsky, who may be an anarcho-Marxist of some kind. Uh, very influential is the work of these two authors, Negri and Hart and Negri who make the point that there's a global oppressive empire and social movements are like the new proletariat out there to fight it. And commitment, forceful commitment is needed to overcome this new empire. Uh, there are various movements of forms of anarchism and a variation on anarchism called autonomism, very popular in Europe, especially in Italy and parts of other parts of Western Europe. Uh, deep ecological movements and all kinds of anti-imperialist thinkers. Or, uh, yeah, all kinds of, uh, or various forms of anti-imperialism, anti anti-colonialism, and post-colonial thought. What I have done is, in this particular paper, avoided trying to make sense or clarify these multiple self-contradicting, contending ideas, and look at the activist literature itself. And there is actually an activist literature I cited in the paper. And if you actually look at the scientist, activist literature, they kind of avoid the theoretical arcana and focus more on what they're against and what they're for and how they go, want to go about achieving. Um, and, and if you look implicitly, less, less theoretically about what, on what, they, what they have in mind, you see pretty clearly that they have divided the world into the evil, toxic world and the potential pure role as, as activists. They are the ones who are committed to the finest, to bettering the world. And their purpose is to fight this cruel old capitalist world and create the wonderful new world that is possible in which humanity will survive in amity and cleanliness and in a pristine environment. Not only that, a further feature of the new world will be to be democratic. You see, we do not live, according to this mode of thought, truly in a democratic world. Because if we lived in a truly democratic world, let's say America was truly democratic, and the Western countries were truly democratic, then people would get what they desire or strive for, right? And people, in the, in the belief system of the purificationists, desire and strive for peace, for clean environment, for sustainable development. Because we don't have it, we don't have it because we don't have a real democracy. We have a pretense of democracy. True democracies would be grassroots democracies, are participatory democracies in which all are involved. And therefore, if there is a, 
uh, and, and uh, participatory not in the sense of elections, but people get together and in these meetings, these fully participatory events, they get to shape their world directly, bypassing legal institutions, uh, checks and balances, parliamentary methods, which slow down the direct relationship between the wants of the grassroots and the new better world to which they can get committed. So they can claim that the world they want to create is more purely democratic than any kind of democracy that we live in at present. Um, a particular example of the widespread popularity of this movement is what's called the World Social Forum. Uh, how many have heard of the World Social Forum? Not very well now. Okay, same guy. Okay. The World Social Forum has been created as a reaction to the meetings of the large, the, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and all right, the G8, and so forth, these organizations against which uh, the people I'm talking about are likely to, to get together and demonstrate. The last meeting was this January in Belém, in Brazil. According to its webpage of this, uh, the organizers of the meeting, there's a meeting, a World Social Forum meeting once a year. It brought together 120,000 people, over 4,000 non-governmental organizations, representing all shades of positions, all kinds, not political positions, but all kinds of people against the destruction of forests, people for uh, equal rights for homosexuals, uh, people uh, against various kinds of abuses and human rights abusements and civil rights abuses around the world, people for uh, um, uh, forgiving third world debt, uh, for protecting rivers, and so forth. And <clears throat> there were many demonstrations, many meetings. What they have in common? The slogan was, if a better world is possible. What is the nature of this better world? The better world will be one, contrary to the one we live in present present, and what will make it different will be, it will be not this capitalist, globally controlled world, global patriarchy. It will be a participatory, ecologically and economically sustainable world in which various groups uh, celebrate each other's cultures and create a better world for participatory democracy. There is a commonality despite the different interests. And here's the fundamental distinction, the way I would make it. Let's say you or I believe in a particular issue. I may very well believe that there ought to be equal protections for homosexuals. I may also very well be very interested in the protection of rivers from depredation. may be interested in the protection of Amazonian tribes. But I may say that the way to bring each of these about is to fight for them through a republican system in which different interests are represented and sometimes uh, policies are achieved, negotiations are required, compromises are reached, and there are some successes and failures, and we stumble along understanding that the system allows progress to be made in this kind of fitful fashion. The distinction here in the new, to new ideology that I'm talking about, very much resembling a totalitarian ideology, is that I believe the present world must be fully overcome because all problems exploitations and depredations are caused by this global capitalist system. I want to suggest that this particular worldview 
which is it's up to you to judge, and I cannot fully make the case here, very widespread, has seven consequences which I have written on the board. I am not going to discuss all seven consequences. I'm going to focus myself only on one of the consequences, but in the question period, I can discuss any of the other situations. Okay, I'm going to talk about anti-science. <coughs> the uh, possibly greatest European writer on the subject of anti-Semitism is called Andre Tadwiev. Have you had him over here yet, Charles? Okay. Uh, he raised this very interesting question. He observed that in France, he's in France, there was a demonstration against for protecting the appellation for Roquefort trees, for Roquefort. Now, appellation means that, uh, so the brand or the, the native right to use the term Roquefort in whatever part of France Roquefort is made. The demonstration was because global corporations Apparently, we're trying to use that terminology and make Roquefort where it shouldn't be made. And Tagliaf asked the question, why were there anti-Zionist slogans and anti-Israeli uh, demonstrations there at the Roquefort demonstration, at the Roquefort event? Or to take another example, why is it at the World Social Forum in Belém in Brazil, that's at the, at the mouth of the Amazon. It's 5,000 miles from Jerusalem. The, um, one of the three major organizers were interviewed. What were the major accomplishments of this meeting in January in Belém? Over 100,000 participants. He said, well, we had pro-Palestinian, anti-Israeli demonstrations every single day. And these are people who come with all kinds of issues. In Toronto, there was not long ago, a year and a half ago, an equal pay demonstration. Why were there anti-Zionist statements on the equal pay demonstration? Why is it that your uh, uh, British academics have only even talked about boycotting one country ever? Israel. And no other country. Right now, Norwegian academics are talking about it. What is the explanation? <clears throat> I think the explanation was already right there when I attended that meeting and just in front of my eyes it took me a while to get it. Okay. The explanation is partly in the very nature of totalitarian ideologies and has been remarked on very often. If you want to recreate the world, reshape the world into a far better one, and you know that that far better one will be a far more virtuous and blissful one, and the one you are fighting is horrific and can destroy the whole world and oppresses the world. Clearly you're undergoing this is a very great moral struggle you're a part of. <clears throat> but it's, you're fighting a very abstract enemy. Global capitalism is abstract. America is a little less abstract than find American domination. It's much easier to have an enemy, if you want to recreate and create a good and great humanity, you must also have an enemy of humanity. Some sinister force that is preventing this from happening, this transformation from happening. Everyone knows it'd be so great to live in this blissful world, yet it is not happening. What is preventing it? So, it is the need for an enemy of humanity. The Nazis had an enemy of humanity. The communists had enemies of humanity. As a matter of fact, 
there's a great, great quote from the great Bolshevik writer, Gorky, who himself says, of course, we were lovers of humanity. But as lovers of humanity, uh, but lovers of humanity, just to have a love of humanity was not, I don't have this exactly, but just to have a love of humanity is really not sufficient. We also motivated people by finding and identifying the enemies of humanity. So I want to suggest that Zionism has a particular role. Anti-Zionism role has this particular important role. Its role is to be the new enemy of humanity. It functions as that because Israel is in permanent war. The conditions of being in permanent war are very difficult to understand. All wars, all wars, and everyone's wars have, have atrocities of various kinds. But if you focus it on very carefully, and you focus, and, and literally, thousands of organizations are focusing on Israel's activities, looking for things very often, inventing things, exaggerating things. It comes to seem to a lot that there's so much, but there's so much smoke, there must be so much fire, something particularly sinister about Israel. Israel then is coming to have a very important role. Its role is to be that enemy of humanity, that most sinister enemy of humanity, even most, possibly even the one that controls the United States, from which all these depredations come. And what is more, when you get all of these people together, think about all the different kinds of groups that we're talking about getting together, environmentalists, various kinds of I would say not quite feminist, post-feminist, almost post-genderist would be the proper term. Radicals, uh, environmental radicals of various kinds, people into abolishing poverty, people into saving the oceans, uh, into helping various groups around the world dam problems or, or protecting cheese or whatever it may be. How do you get, what is the common language that brings them together? And that I think was the actual explanation for the which is the opportunity to hate through an enemy that everyone could understand was the very uh, basis for creating solidarity in this new world movement. So thank you. So we'll have Q&A and I'll, I'll start off the question. Sure. Um, I, I spoke at the World Social Forum actually in uh, Bombay, Mumbai. You went there, okay. I was there. And I actually spoke about issues of Israeli uh, Palestinian peace uh, conflict. So it was an interesting experience. I'm not sure what you're getting at, in the sense that there is a strand, clearly, uh, in, in, in social movements concerned about uh, economic, global justice, and environmental issues, and gender issues that are clearly anti Zionist and anti Semitic. Mm -hmm. um, but what percentage, who are they, uh, what are their names, what are the names of the organizations, are, you, are there specific groups that are sort of part of the social movement for justice that are anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist, are you saying the whole notion of trying to improve the world is somehow part of a totalitarian mindset, because I think in a sense that, you know, one thing that comes to mind when you're speaking, there's over a billion people tonight that will go to bed hungry. Mm -hmm. The United States consumes much more than 50% of the world's resources every day. There are structural problems. There are economic and political, global and environmental problems that are real. Uh, people may use it in, in times of crisis uh, to push all sorts of agendas. Some of them reactionary, some of them hateful. Right. So how do you, 
balance um, a critique of people like Finkelstein, a, a critique of people who are, I think, genuinely fighting for basic human rights. I mean, it is a, it's a basic human right to have food, it's a basic human right to have shelter, it's a basic human right to have education and health care. These are basic human rights. So how do you distinguish between people who are fighting for a better future, which I think can is can I, in a Jewish fashion, can I return the question? Yeah, let me just finish. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think as a scholar of society, which we're all here interested in society, it's perhaps our greatest responsibility to improve the world. As a Jewish person, that's perhaps why we're here. So how do you, how do you balance critiquing reactionary hateful movements that are anti-Semitic and anti-Israel, but those who are really trying to improve the world to make it a better place? Now first, let's be careful about the use of the word anti-Semitic, right? I use the word anti-Zionist. Uh, I think it is a form of anti-Semitism, but I think it should be called anti-Zionism. This is the current generation of it. It's not race-based. So it's not anti-Semitic in the 20th century sense. Uh, there are some race, some racism is still a part of it, and that's sort of a fringe, some of the fringe movements. This is the, the left fascist rapprochement, which is a very interesting um, phenomenon in itself, but deserves extensive uh, discussion. Uh, it does happen, but it's not predominant. Uh, <clears throat> Anti-Semitism went through various phases over the centuries, including the deicide anti-Semitism and uh, the anti-Semitism of those who believe Jews invented capitalism in the 19th century and so on. Um, this is a new phase. It is a form of anti, probably it's a form of Jew hatred of which racial anti-Semitism was one phase. Okay, but now we've adopted anti-Semitism as a generic term, so yes, it does fall under it. Um, are these groups anti-Semitic in the ordinary traditional sense of it? They are not. The vast majority of them are not. Uh, they are anti-Zionist, or they sidestep it, or just go ahead and to the meeting. So the situation, for example, was Durban, right? Now, I assume this audience is familiar with the Durban events. And the question is, this was against xenophobia and racism. And this is what especially incensed Bernard on related. He said that uh, the Durban events essentially uh, whitewashed genocide within Africa, managed to sidestep. Sidestep oppression in North Korea, we never addressed it. Uh, addressed the, didn't address the elimination of various cultural groups like the Nubians, uh, also in Africa. Uh, did not address, of course, uh, female apartheid in, in Saudi Arabia. It managed not to address a large majority of issues, even though many of these were the very progressive types that you have, you have raised right now. They're there for a better world, you know, against, the, you know, America taking up a bulk of the real measure is 50%, but, you know, significant part of the energy resources. Uh, so why did they waste their time with Zionism? Mm -hmm. uh, so I can return the question. I mean, why was this such a large bulk of what they were doing? Uh, why did it dominate? Uh, defenders of Durban, Canadian defenders of Durban, I read some articles that said, of course, it's not quite fair. There are other things were going on. So there were people going around with placards and chanting, one Jew, one bullet, or one bullet, one Jew, that sort of thing, okay? which doesn't even sound like anti-Zionism anymore. But you know, there are other things also going on. But wait a second, you're there in an anti-racist meeting. The whole tradition of anti-racism and hatred is that if you see it and you ignore it, you're a part of it. So these humanitarian groups were there 
saw it, they may not have encouraged it, but didn't fight it. So they were lending, and they're lending their name for the final declarations. So somehow, they, even if they were not very direct or you know, they had no particular kicks to get out of attacking Israel, they just let it go. It's part of the price to pay. And I think it is part of the price to pay to be a legitimate humanitarian organization nowadays. I think if you want to be a legitimate humanitarian organization, you've got to pay, at the very least, strong lip service to attacking Israel. Because if you are not, then you seem to be, and in a sense, Israel is perceived or projected as empire's projection into the Middle East by the colonial settler state, false depiction, but colonial settler state in the Middle East. Uh, projected there by the, uh, by the Imperial West. And that is not to bring it up and not to be for it, it's a way of uh, putting yourself outside the mainstream of, uh, of humanitarian discussion. I think the price to be paid for contemporary humanitarianism is to attack Israel. So, I'm going to uh, okay. my last question. Sure. Go, go, go. Um, so, I think my, my point is like, Perhaps you need, I would say, to be more focused on who you're specifically speaking about. Because I can speak about Durban, the Durban conference. I was there, I was on a panel discussion where Harry Bernard W was actually there as well. And of course, the official Durban review process was hijacked by people who hate Israel. Right. Particularly radical Islamists, Iran, other organizations, some governments, some NGOs who really singled Israel out in the most pernicious way. On the other hand, there were NGOs there. There were governments there. We're actually going to have a speaker from the Rwandan mission in Geneva yes. who um, were, I think, heroes of NGOs, individuals, people at the United Nations who fought against this form of, of hatred, right. of Israel bashing or anti-Zionism or anti-Semitism, right. however you want to call it. So, uh, and these are people that believe in a better world and are working for and there were people from Iran, from Iraq, from North Africa, from parts of Africa, other parts of Africa, NGOs of all kinds, really working to defend uh, to defend Israel and Jewish people. So, but they're dangerous to them because they tend to split. So what? So what percentage are you speaking about? Are you speaking about a mind, a worldview that wants to improve the world that's inherently uh, tyrannical or reactionary or anti-Zionist, or are you speaking about fringe? 20 percent, 50 percent? My judgment, I mean, for many of the, many of the participants in these movements, okay, many of the different movements, this is social, social movements, for many of them, it's, uh, it's not central to their issue, that's for sure. Um, I think if you want solidarity, I think it's necessary to at least be quiet or fight it as little as possible because it interferes with the achievement that you're issued in a better world to fight anti-Zionism. Uh, exactly what the percentages are, you know, I don't, yeah, I don't really know. <coughs> What's remarkable, then, but nevertheless, I've given you these examples, and they are contrary examples to what you're saying, such as the Roadford example. Uh, Tagiev actually uses the term to explain it, they call it neo-communism, which is a variation, I think, on what I'm saying. And he says this also what brings together, he uses expressions like, European post-Christians, uh, Muslims, new radicals, and so forth. It becomes a common language. So um, clearly they're very well-meaning people. I think that the way I would draw the distinction, well-meaning is not good at, is whether, uh, take the United States where this movement is growing very rapidly. 
you believe that improvement is going to be brought about through the checks and balances of a Republican constitutional government, and that through it you can achieve betterment and reform, or the very reason why we have not achieved a fine future is because the system is repressive and must be overcome. That's the division. Uh, <coughs> um, I'm not sure I can give you a better, you know, better explanation than that. Yeah. yeah um, I have first a comment and then a, a question. Sure. Um, the comment, I spent um, a lot of time reading over um, some of your um, SPME postings before the, the meeting and um, find your, your writing very entertaining. Um, one, one way to get no, it, bad, no, in a good way. <laughs> but it, but um, in when you were reviewing um, Levy's book, yes. you kind of pointed to, for him, the critical experience seems to have had something to do with the, the Cambodian genocide. Yes. Yes. And the idea that remaking really seems to mean remaking everything was, was the, the idea when you get to that point and you've remade everything and you, then you get to terrible, terrible evil, that's kind of what turned him around. And I'm, I'm wondering, but part of what you're, you seem to be getting at here is that the key predicting variable is people who don't seem to have arrived at that judgment yet, but still think that, that in order to remake anything, you have to remake everything. Yes. And you've got to kind of redo the whole. So that, that's the comment. But the question is, is, it, is yet another way to try to get at what I think Charles is asking, but rather not asking it from a, um, a political point of view, but from an empirical point of view. You seem to have defined an ideal type here, which is a, um, somebody who believes in the good world in all these different dimensions, one of even nutritious food, um, all sorts of things, environmentalism, global warming, it all seems to come together. And then you're... You're also predicting a big kind of cluster of attitudes over there. So you have one big cluster of attitudes predicting another big cluster of attitudes. And I'm wondering, for those of us who are specifically interested in the anti-Zionism or anti-Semitism issue, um, is it possible to kind of focus on which of the particular beliefs in that cluster are likely to be the strongest predictors of, um, of hostility towards Israel? And which are like the, I mean, you've shown that Roquefort cheese can can lead to anti-Zionism under some circumstances. But that it, that would seem to me to be the exceptional case. There may be other parts of that cluster which are stronger predictors of anti anti-Zionist attitudes. I wonder if you thought about that at all. Um, what? May I just go back to the first part? Of your yeah, sure. Yeah. I find it easier to comment on okay. it. I'm going to let myself think through it. Okay, yeah. Okay. And by the way, I realize with some of you coming, it seems like I'm being very rhetorical. And the rhetorical form which what I'm talking is because of the nature of a half hour talk. And, and please, I, I do try to be more careful with my words uh, in the article itself. So you can decide as you get to read the article whether I am capable of more systematically presenting the ideas than I do in this quick summary fashion. Um, yes, one of the very disturbing things that Bernard-Henri Levy was concerned about was the way in which Western intellectuals and radical intellectuals were able to ignore the warning signs, uh, to disregard the greatest human killing in human history, which was Stalinism and Mao's China, and Mao was the largest killer in human history, it appears 
estimated number is between 25 and 100 million people killed. And the Soviet Union, um, smaller numbers, they actually killed more than Hitler did. You know, you hard to the scale of horrific is very hard to compare. There are big scales to look at, not just numbers. Uh, and um, how long the Western intellectuals and left intellectuals managed to ignore all this. It's interesting coming from Bernard Arnold Levy himself, who's very much a leftist and still considers himself a leftist, considered himself a 1968 leftist, wants to bring about an end to tyrannies and to increase human rights. What he's seeing is a rebirth of a new kind of left, which poses the same kind of dangers that those old, um, old 20th century ideologies did. Uh, and in the paper itself, I talk about uh, four different social theorists, most prominently Hannah Arendt, who have talked about the nature of totalitarian ideologies, how they project a secular religion a secular utopia, almost like a, a millenarian achievement through which, um, uh, through which the world will be better. And self-sacrifice, often violent sacrifice, is needed to bring it about. Uh, and a particularly disturbing aspect is the, to, when you divide the world into the global, uh, global capitalist power versus the oppressed communities and the environment. Uh, what you find is you must constantly divide the world that way, and therefore oppression that cannot be attributed to global capitalist power must remain ignored, which may be the explanation for why Noam Chomsky wrote the book that uh, an entire book rejecting that there had been a Cambodian genocide. He later retracted that one. Yeah. And uh, he has also written favorable articles, or at least a very favorable introduction to the book by Forisson on Holocaust denial. Now, it's not that Noam Chomsky believes that there was no Holocaust. It's impossible. He lost his own relatives in it. It's that from, his, from the point of view of this mentality, you can't, don't want any distraction from the idea that world capitalist evil is the most sinister force there is. Okay, now getting back to your more specific question. Um, Look, I've been at this for you know a few years, but specifically focusing, actually doing writing on it only for about six months. And I think a very interesting question is an empirical one. How many groups are participating, what their views are? It's actually very hard to tell. And empirical studies of these groups are rare. And I don't know what your background is or what you do. I think it's eminently worthwhile to do empirical studies. Excuse me. Um, and uh, what you find is almost everything written about them is by members themselves. There are no outside critics systematically studying the anti-globalization movement. I haven't found a single one. But maybe you're wrong on this. Okay. So I think we do we need to learn a lot more about them. And we do need to understand NGOs in the larger context in which they operate. Uh, so I could, if you want one particular example, I think you're uh, asking for and a fascinating example is Amnesty International. Now, amnesty was probably for a long time, and I hope I may not be answering your question, but I will support the answering to yours. Uh, amnesty uh, was the, um, probably the preeminent, the most distinguished human rights organization in the world. The many still view it that way. In the early 2000s, when Irene Khan became his director, he started changing his focus. She saw herself, and I have actually just recently an extensive article from the Financial Times about this, an interview with her, you know, saw that its direction ought to be changed. 
she saw herself as the first representative of the global south, to use her expression, uh, on its leadership, that formerly uh, Amnesty International had been Western charitable work, and it wasn't sufficiently understood that the depredations in the world were part of a larger systemic set of forces that kept people poor, and when poor people are, then there are poor people and there are starving people, then uh, within that context, how many of those poor people are starving people care about political prisoners? I have a more specific quote that I actually include in the paper on this. Um, she's also the one who became famous and controversial in the United States for saying that Guantanamo Bay, where four prisoners underwent water torture, was the American Gulag. Use her expression. Of course, the Soviet Gulag killed 500,000 people at least, and they were not uh, they were not uh, you know, soldiers. They were not. What's the expression? They were not uh, combatants. Yeah, they were civilians. So, what is the logic? of making, and Irene Khan also did not distinguish her organization from the Durban events. Human Rights Watch did eventually reject the Durban resolutions, Irene Khan and Amnesty International never did. I think the larger world in which the NGO leadership operates is a world in which these radical beliefs are held. I think that's their peer group. That's part of what they consider themselves to be answering. Philosophically, conceptually, are you opposed to Zionism? Because Zionism is about revolutionizing the Jewish condition and improving it. Uh, it was an utopian vision of the future. So you be That's a great that? question. Okay, that's a great question. Uh, I'm a Zionist. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't. I'm probably not a Zionist in, in the respect in which many ideals in society. And people can have their own ideals and hope for the betterment. And the American Revolution was based on ideals. Uh, many of the great changes in the United States were based on ideals. But also the changes in the United States were based on ideals uh, which were eventually executed through laws and through a more or less fairly good democratic system. Um, the Zionists had ideals for themselves to recreate, to recreate their society. They're fighting, especially as it turned out, very good in predicting, far too effective in predicting, but extreme, the extreme <coughs> precariousness under which Jews lived in Europe. Uh, the society they created in the end became a demo fairly democratic society and has remained so despite all the wars. They, they were attempts, probably, unfortunately, many probably misguided attempts to create a new kind of socialist society. I think that kind of weakened Israel for a long time. Um, <coughs> you know, if you really look at why Jews <coughs> went to Israel from Europe, I can think of my own relatives. You know, they actually didn't read the Zionist literature. They went there as refugees, they went there hoping for a safe life. So even though the Zionist intellectuals are better known, and we think of the early Zionist intellectuals who are motivated by different kinds of things, you know, socialism and nationalism and, you know, religious beliefs and so forth. The people that went there, by and large, the bulk of the people went to escape oppression and to create a decent life for themselves. So um, I, um, I do not view my views as being uh, in contradiction. Okay. Yes? Thank you for a very provocative, uh, thought-provoking paper and talk. Sure. Um, so one comment and one question. Yes. First, 
of all, so as you argue that these purif purif purification movements are quasi or totalitarian, um, and you invoke in your paper Hannah Arendt, right. um, so I'd like to push you on this a little please, bit. Please. So in my reading of Arendt and Origins, the core component of a totalitarian ideology is that it requires, as she argues, it requires the elimination, the extermination of a group of people from this earth. Yes. So you imply that towards the end of your paper, but you don't lay that out as core to her idea of totalitarianism. And if you're going to be making this argument that these modern social movements are actually totalitarian, well, I mean, it's a pretty extreme concept that requires the actual extermination, not just expulsion, not just, um, it's not just having a political enemy, mm -hmm. it's a very, very grand project. So just a little bit of caution in your, your use of RN. Um, secondly, um, let me rework Nick Cohen's question. What's new in the, in the new left? What's okay. new in this left? Because as I'm sure you know, this, many components of this ideology emerged right. in the 1968 new left. Sartre calls America a mad dog yes. in his introduction to Fanon. Um, you know, Chomsky is this you know, we, we talked about this, right? So, so tell me, what's what's new? Have we seen an evolution in this ideology? What are we seeing that's specifically new today in your mind? It is an evolution of many strands. Some strands go all the way back to the, to the early 1940s and early 1950s. So, it certainly has precedents going back a long way. I think we're seeing the emergence, and it, it is so difficult to de determine its ideological core at this point because it has so many aspects to it. And there are so many contending ideas at work. So the simplified, and this is clearly subject to criticism, but the simplified approach I took was to focus on the activist literature, not the theoretical literature. And if you read the activist literature, it's simpler. There is a conceptual package there. The package is this combination of cultural, ecological, and economic ideas about how to create a better world and what the enemy of that better world is. It is not based on Production doesn't come into it. As a matter of fact, production is kind of forgotten. Uh, the proletarian and class struggle plays a relatively minor role. But it's anti-capitalist. But it's anti-capitalist, but it continues to be anti-capitalist. Whether it's fully anti-left or not is a different subject because of certain uh, features of it that are very troubling in their connection to, to neo-fascism, but it's a separate subject we haven't gotten to yet. Um, <coughs> And it is very cultural in many ways. It, it, it is based on concepts that, or very common to it, are the concepts that these culture communities are somehow integral organic wholes. And they can somehow have to communicate with each other. Very often, some of this literature is really no secular world left. You have these different cultures trying to communicate with each other and celebrate each other and understand each other, which I think in some ways if that is maintained, tends to destroy the very idea on which conventional, you know, bourgeois, liberal democracy is based, that there's a realm, there's a public secular realm in which you can all interact that is meaningful and rational in itself. So, uh, it pulled together, it, there's not an absolute distinction here, right? And one could say, it's fair to say that I'm just talking about a new left. It's fair enough to say that. I am making a somewhat stronger point. This continuity and there's change. I'm emphasizing the change rather than the continuity, right? And I'm doing that partly for rhetorical purposes. That is true, to be, become a little more stronger, perhaps. No, don't give in yeah. to me. I, yeah. I think you, you are identifying. Yeah. 
But I, I think there is something going on. Also, comments and a question. Uh, you know, we've been blessed by having uh, both Allison Muir and, and Bill Finkelstein in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. very nice. And at you. Finkelstein was at you last year. And we have groups with. Uh, I, I've come to the conclusion that any group that has either peace or justice in its name isn't interested in either. Uh, we have a Connecticut, uh, what is it, Connecticut United for Peace and Justice, Athens for Peace, uh, we refuse to be enemies with anybody but Israel, kind of thing. Uh, what, what I wonder is, with these groups, are they, does the anti-Zionism come from the ideology of the group, or is it that the people who are basically anti-Semitic and find anti-Zionism uh, an excellent way, of, a socially acceptable way of projecting their anti-Semitism, uh, finding these groups useful vehicles for expressing their hatred? I think it's, I think it's, I think one can't, what is it? I think it's sufficient to say that this would happen even if many of the participants have no, not an anti-Semitic bone in their body in the traditional sense of anti-Semitic. Many of them, of course, as we know, are Jewish. Okay. Some of them attend synagogues. Um, so, which doesn't mean they're not anti-Semitic. Which doesn't mean they're not anti-Semitic. But certainly not in the traditional sense. I think you can have this because it is, if you imagine a meeting 15 years ago as the anti-globalization movement or the purification movement is rising, and all these different groups on different agendas, I think it would naturally percolate without the need for any, uh, any conspiracy whatsoever. What percolate is that those things that create enthusiasm, solidarity, and mutual agreement will continue to be discussed further in other meetings and create solidarity. And I think it was discovered 15, 20 years ago that anti-Zionism did it that it worked. Now, at the same time, that coincided with the interests of true anti-Semites, neo-fascists, neo-Nazis, who are also circulating around. And that alliance is very, I don't discuss it in the paper, but at a further point, I do want to get into it, the left fascist alliance is a very interesting one, and something that this version of the West is constantly trying to suppress and to deal with and to accommodate to in various ways. It's a very tense problem within their movement. I can give examples if people want, but I don't have to do that. Yes? If globalization would seem to be the ultimate uh, problem from these groups, are these groups basically um, isolated and sort of one-issue groups, or are they, get to, are they able to get together on the broader issues that may not affect their one-issue interests? Right. One of the many terms that they use, and probably one of the very descriptive ones, is the expression movement of movements. I don't know if you're the expression movement of movements. If you use any of these terms, movement of movements, anti-globalization, counter-globalization, just stick them into Google, you're going to get uh, endless stuff on this. Um, you have both. You have those that are single interest groups, and you have those uh, that are trying to make these interest groups converge and work together. So those are the people with an interest in capitalist change per se. Anti-capitalist per se is their major item of agenda item. And what they may be coming at it from anarchist points of view or uh, uh, neo-colonialist, post-colonialist points of view or neo-Marxist points of view and so forth. 
Um, so you do have both. So you have something like the Seattle demonstrations, which we just started, and then most recently in London, you have the black bloc, these guys, men and women dressed in black clothes, they're anarchists, okay? You have those people against the destruction of the Amazon forest, maybe that's like mainly what they're into, okay? Other people want debt forgiveness, uh, yeah, endless other issues. Um, this creates a platform or role for all these groups to believe that they are working to get towards a better world. Because why is Amazon being destroyed after all? But are, are they really working together or are they just sort of, one group seems to want them to work together. And also, is anti-Zionism anti another group that can be separated from some of the more peace and, 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 uh, peace and whatever there are both specifically anti-Zionist pro-Palestinian groups or anti-colonialist groups, yes. Um, um, but I think anti-Zionism has become the common language, the object of hatred through which to create you know, solidarity. So a lot of groups that have no conception of what Israel is about or Middle East history will be on board because that's just, just, just the way you're part of the whole movement. Can they be separated from the anti-Zionist groups? I think there are single-issue anti-Zionist groups too, that also exist, yes. And many of them are connected to Arab sources, Arab money, and so on. Mm -hmm. Anybody else have a question? Comment? Could some of these um, demonstrations, even though their meetings were totally different meetings, be um, called on for incitement to violence. You wrote about that, more so dealing with Iran and um, so forth and so on. Are they not big enough to do that? Or it's only with um, states? Um, well, the relationship between these groups and violence is a very interesting one and very touching one within the various coalitions of movements because many of them are pacifists too, they want to keep the pacifists on board. Uh, so the coy word, word that is used is resistance. And it's very hard to tell what resistance means and so it is kept. But many of, much of the activist literature actually discusses violence and whether they should support violence or not. There is great support, for example, for the Zapatista movement, one of the early successful movements um, in Mexico which was violent, but seen as justifiably violent to overcome oppression. And the same authors here in the United States will then ask themselves, should we also engage in violence? And often the answer is no, it would never work in the United States, and it would just turn people against us. Uh, at the same time, there is this, almost a, a fan, you know, I prefer to them as intifada groupies, you know, people who are in favor of various kinds of violence and flame it, inflame it or incite it in various ways. But very rarely, I think, in the legal sense. I think in the legal sense within the United States, you have to say that you as a person should kill him as a person, okay? Her as a person. Very generic stuff like that is quite legal in the United States. So I don't think there's any legal basis, unless it is. It is a point that person's individuals. Sure. against democracy 
um, in this kind of movements. Yes. And there's a long, of course, a long history of anti-Americanism, <coughs> anti-Semitism in Germany. And I found when I in private discussions or when I talk to people who are in this kind of movement, there's also you find a, a deep, deeply, a deep uh, skepticism towards democra democratic principles. That have, there was the um, democracy was. Um, established in Germany, but from the outside and so on, and so I wonder um, how it works here because I always thought that uh, conflict solving in a democratic way is more, yes, uh, accepted here or more plays a greater role, and there's a kind of barrier against these uh, pro-violent groups and. I mean, in Germany, I'm not. Um, it's now. I am not astonished by the fact that there are so many people who don't believe in in a democratic way of solving conflicts, social conflicts, and they. So that w there is a tradition of, um, 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 yeah, um, radical for radical movements and so on. But is this? That what do you think? Does it, this this play a role here too? Uh, general skepticism towards democracy, or um, is it not so? <coughs> those same movements very often say that they actually are democratic, but they're democratic in a better way. Grassroots democratic, I don't know what the German words would be, but the democracy that rises up from the bottom is a truer form of democracy than the kind of democracy that works with you know, Republican structures, legislative, judiciary, slow, creaky, tiresome, and so on. I don't think they would that say depends, that. Yeah. yeah, it depends. Yes, yes. Um, how does it work here in the United States? Uh, here in the United States, it has moved more slowly than in Europe. These things are more pervasive in Europe than they are here. and moving somewhat faster in Canada than it is here. Here, it has gained most influence on campuses and within, within these peace and justice groups, and they are still quite small. So the actual impact on conventional politics is relatively limited. Uh, and they are closely interwoven with these non-governmental non NGOs, uh, which are also greatly influenced by this mentality. I don't think they have entered the mainstream in United States politics. Mm -hmm. So a representative group may be the Green Party, for example, uh, but the Green Party represents these, or represents itself with ideas here in the United States that are considered bizarre by mainstream Americans. So their only foreign policy of the Green Party has been a detestation of, of Israel. <coughs> they have no other foreign policy. But the, uh, the Cynthia McKinney, who's the head of it, also was on one of these Gaza boats that entered Gaza to deliver assistance and to use it for propaganda purposes. But she also accused the United States government of, uh, after the Katrina floods, uh, secretly burying 6,000 bodies not to, you know, to, 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 to reduce the toll of the, um, to show that the destruction wasn't as great as it really was. In other words, there's a very conspiratorial, peculiar mindedness. So uh, they are probably, the Green Party doesn't even properly represent this movement in South United States and all the reasons they're quite marginal still. So I think the answer to here is that they haven't, they're still at the margins. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about this uh, 
the theoretical um, compatibility of this lip service to grassroots democracy right. and um, support of indigenous cultures and their ways, such as like authoritarian structures in Islamic nations. Um, right. Like, do you think this is a temporary thing, or is it is it like a feature that will be continuous throughout the movement of um, like? It, it, is it necessary to have this dichotomy of oppressor versus victim, with the oppressor being anything American, so that anything the victim does is acceptable, despite it being in direct opposition to this idea of consensus decision-making or participatory democracy? This is one of the internal tensions, I think, within the movement, and why I think Islamism is not really a part of it. I think it's in an alliance with Islamism, Islamism, and, and within the American setting, uh, Muslims are considered uh, one of the minority movements and cultures to be protected. But um, it is, they are, I think they know they're not the same as Islamism. They are just uh, engaging in various kinds of cooperation, mutual reinforcement. Um, I should probably say that the more correct way in which I present this to state, instead of using the word consequences in the paper, I use the word warning signs. Because I think we are in a transitional phase. I do distinctly identify this movement as an ideology, not as a regime. A regime would bring about all kinds of, it would be an actual government setting in which some of these ideas are attempted. The only place where this is actually being tried is in Venezuela, for example, where Chavez has come out very much spouting these kinds of ideas. He calls it uh, 21st century socialism or eco-socialism, but very much reflecting these, this conglomerate of ideas from Chomsky and others. Um, <coughs> these ideas, such a movement definitely depends on this binary opposition between the pure and the evil. I think that is necessary. How it will deal with actually having power or holding a regime is a, is a separate question. Uh, if we look at Venezuela as an example, what you see is the creation of numerous local councils, as a matter of thousands of local councils, which are stated as proof of grassroots democracy, and therefore the claim that Venezuela is more democratic than the United States. But of course what you have on top is the strong man and the suppression of the, of, uh, of the media. But of course the media is part of the corporate global conglomerate, so you must suppress it. So, um, I may have lost track of your question along the way. Maybe correct, help correct me. Uh, just just whether this, the, the tension will need to be resolved, or, or whether the internal tension. Uh, I mean, yeah, between like this alliance with like Islamism or, or I mean, anti-Zionism in general. Yeah, well, and the further uh, tension between the anti-authoritarian, anti-centralized government kind of feature that this movement has in general, so semi-anarchist features, and the fact that if you want to be environmentalist, you have to control things. You have to control, you know, how much oil is used and whether it's going to be nuclear energy or not, and how much people travel and so forth. So you'll need sort of coercive governmental structures to bring it about if you have this no, no sense in which we know what kind of institutions can work. Because institutions, all institutions are, so there's another tension, there's several tensions. And I think the, the, the very feature to watch out for with these warning signs is that when a regime is connect, created, the regime will have to hide from itself its internal contradictions. And that is one of the things that is so reminiscent of the creation of the Soviet Union. Wherefore, you know, if you think about it, it would, to Marx, okay, created, has had his own vision of this beautiful society in which everyone lived according, received material goods according to his need and worked according to his ability. And it was 100 years between then 
and the 20th century recreation of slave labor. Massive, hundreds of millions of forced labor under communist rule. Yet, it was still communist, it was still Marxist. So it is possible, under conditions of totalitarian ideology, to have a society that lives according or, or, or pretends or expresses one set of beautiful ideas, but lives under an extremely repressive system. We know that is possible. And we know that these are not the first idealists to come along that we're talking about. So um, I, we don't know how they're going to deal with their tensions. To some extent, they'll split apart, for sure. Some will fall off. How do you view the Obama attempt to reform health care and, and intervene into the market's place of medicine? Obama's a very difficult person. With regard to medicine, is that part of a, the ideology that you just responded no. to? No, no, no. That is, that is conventional American liberals. But, but he has interesting associations with uh, people like this, and those are interesting and troubling. We don't know where, what kind of person he really is. And I could go more about that, but I'm not sure. Okay, I'm just thinking about how you. Um, I mean, we've all encountered these people and tried to uh, have rational discussions with them, and they're, they're very difficult to win, yes. those sorts of discussions. And, and I'm thinking, well, where do you, um, you probably can't get traction in a debate with, with the people themselves. The battle is really for the broader liberal community on the college campuses, and that battle has to be waged. I mean, they, you're never going to sell a Burkean conservatism, I think, on, on the American college campus. You have to kind of just sell a more reasonable form of liberalism. But um, then, then I started thinking, well, we, we kind of defeated communism without ever winning over the intelligentsia on the college campuses. Is it possible that these problems could, be, you know, that the these, the ac academia will remain basically heavily influenced by these forces, and yet the battle will be waged elsewhere and won elsewhere. You know, maybe that's the way to go. Maybe the battle is not trying to convince and not trying, you know, not real, the critical battlefield is not the college campuses, but elsewhere. I was wondering, have you given thought to tactics here? <laughs> that's the uh, question. <laughs> first, as the one who was, you know, disturbed by that particular thing, I'm looking at a very correct reflection of what my own I actually couldn't sleep that night. It was just running through my mind, you know. And um, on a personal level, I had to figure out what I could contribute. So I joined the Scholars for Peace in the Middle East, but this little administrative stuff is kind of boring and limiting my strength. Um, and those little essays I can do. But I wondered, because I do have, despite being an urban planner, my background is in planning theory, so I do have a fair amount of background in social and political thought. So I thought maybe the one thing I could contribute was trying to give a theoretical investigation of what was going on. So that could be my little role on a personal mm -hmm. level. I think many of us can seek these roles because there are so many openings in which to have to do something. I want you to find one's mission, which one is good. Uh, in terms of strategy, I think there's an enormous amount of defensiveness that goes on about Israel. You have to understand, you know, I'm not here because I think, you know, Israel is so hunky-dory and perfect. You know, it's a very troubling and difficult situation. I've lived in Israel for two and a half years. Uh, a situation of constant war, you have all kinds of problems. And America's greatest wars have included, and most and 
finest wars, such as America and Europe fighting the Nazis, has had various troubling aspects to it, and which we could discuss. I could even tell you, you know, troubling things after the landing in Normandy. French women were raped by American soldiers. It really troubled Eisenhower. He didn't want to stop the, the, um, the he, didn't, he, he was so upset about it, but he, didn't want, he felt that to investigate would slow down the process. I mean, he gets young men out there doing very, you know, young men out there, 18, 19 year olds, with guns, all kinds of things mm -hmm. happen. It's one of the terrible things about war, short of the memory. I am not an uncritical fan of Israel. I, I am a supporter of Israel. I believe Zionism is a good thing that happened, and I'm glad it happened. I'm here because I'm an anti-anti-Zionist. Mm -hmm. Because the very forms that anti-Zionism has taken is so reminiscent of anti-Semitism of the previous generations that we have seen. It's so extreme. If you're born so extreme, I probably would not have woken up. And the question is how to deal with this extremity strategically. I think we've got to get more on, on the offensive. Because I think it is a form of global injustice. So I think that language can be helpful, at least in my view, and that's the position I would take. Mm -hmm. It is not about constantly having proof that Israel is okay and didn't do this and didn't do this. There are more allegations than Israel can possibly have achieved. There are far more allegations, there are thousands of allegations. The most recent allegation to come out of, uh, of crazy allegations, to come out of this uh, United Nations Council, one of the minor reports not paid attention to, is that Israel is discriminating by uh, uh, by looking, by having female soldiers look at women wearing a burqa when they come into Israel uh, to see if they're really women. Because this can be embarrassing to transsexuals. And Israel is violating their rights as transsexuals. Like, can you imagine that? Who does that? And, you know, maybe two, maybe two or three people have been inconvenienced and embarrassed. But I mean, who investigates Libya that way? You know, I mean, who investigates any other country that level of specificity? It's, it's just a, a level of craziness that is, uh, well that, it's not that Israel has to be explained, that craziness has to be explained. That irrationality needs an explanation, that's what I'm attempting here, for better or worse, okay. okay so on that note, thank you very much. Thank you. Monday at 12 o'clock, David Menashri is speaking, he's the head of Iranian studies at Tel Aviv University. Uh, he's in the U.S. He'll be here 12 o'clock Monday. And if you want to sign up, please do so because it's food. We have to, to RSVP. And today's the deadline. <laughs>